This is Cinema Degeneration. I am the devil, and I am here to do the devil's work. I, I just can't take no pleasure in killing that. Just some things you gotta do. We all go a little mad sometimes. You wanna know what happens to an eyeball when it gets punctured? You just can't let them go? Go! Hi, I'm Chucky. Wanna play? <laughs> Please, God. This is God. The dead will walk here. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Your suffering will be legendary even in hell. <laughs> it's alive, it's alive, it's alive. They all flow down here. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Boy, on our show tonight, sequel to Deja Vu, our hosts celebrate the time-honored tradition of movie sequels including the good, the bad, and the very ugly. From diabolical killers who won't stay in the grave, to science fiction epics whose stories cannot be contained, to a single chapter, and so much more. Join us for the tales you love, and some that you won't believe got made in the first place. Welcome once again to Cinema Degeneration's sequel to Deja Vu. We have something unique and special for you this evening. We're doing our first feature-length commentary track show on Bride of Frankenstein from 1935. The sequel, the first sequel to the original Frankenstein from 1931, both directed by James Whale. And joining me this evening for our first, uh, well, his first uh, foray into cinema degeneration territory is my good friend, Matt Hagman, all the way from Ohio. How are we doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, it was a long way to come for one show, but hey, we're going to make the best of it. <laughs> sure will. And uh, so, Matt here is a lover of all things, I think, pop culture, comic books, horror, video games, pretty much a little little bit of everything, right? That's a fair assumption, yeah. 
Yeah, and he is uh, he is doing things right today by wearing, you can't see us, but he is wearing a Frankenstein, a Boris Karloff t-shirt, so he even dressed for the part. Now, what was your first foray into the Universal Horror movies? Do you remember the first Universal Horror movie that you saw? Yeah, it was the original Frankenstein, 10 years old, went to my public library and checked it out. At that time, you know... They weren't rated, so it was G, so I could easily just walk in, grab it, check it out, and head straight home, pop it in the VCR, and away I went with it. And I was hooked from the moment I saw it. Now, do you have a favorite universal horror monster? The Wolfman. Wolfman? Okay, yeah. good. Wolfman, just because he's such a tragic character. You feel bad for him. He's stuck in something that he had no control over whatsoever. Yeah, I, I think he's in the same boat as uh to me as Frankenstein. He didn't he didn't ask for any of this. He didn't ask to be made into the monster that he was. No, exactly. Oh, but that being said, okay, Pride to Frankenstein, you know, uh had a, a a big hit history, you know, getting made. It took several years to get off the ground. Uh Carl Laum, I'm probably mispronouncing his last name. But uh, the producer of this wanted to get James Whale on board because he had such a great, you know, run with the first uh, Frankenstein. But that took him, what, four years to get him on board. But thankfully he did. I think having James Whale continue on directing it was the right way to go. Yeah, it took four years. He was really picky about the script. Wanted to make sure it was absolutely right before he dove into it. And it was also his last film for Universal as far as the horror films go. And he just went go for broke on this one and it turned out to be absolutely phenomenal yeah and there's a lot of lot cut out of this once i started diving into it i always knew there was a lot of scenes cut out but they cut out a good 15 or 20 minutes out of this which nobody has ever seen none of that all that footage is lost that's why i i'm a big proponent of uh physical media you know just archive that shit (laughs) right make it live on yeah, because there's plenty of it that I, I would love to see, like little bits from conversations that are cut out or certain scenes, story, added storylines that we'll never see. Right. I mean, like uh, with Dr. Pretorius and his little miniature creatures, you know, they had a whole creature cut out of the baby and everything, and there was so much more with that and so much more with, uh, you know, the townspeople hunting down Frankenstein's monster. And yes, you know, this is the movie that where they kind of solidified the fact that they were calling Frankenstein's monster Frankenstein, which... I don't agree with, you know, <laughs> it's the monster, but, you know, it, 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 it is what it is. It was a marketing ploy. Just yeah. straight and simple. It's the best way to get it. Yeah, and Frankenstein is a great, great friggin' name, you know, so why not capitalize on that? But, again, we're gonna about ready to get started here. We're going to be doing, like again, a feature-length commentary, which uh, we have it here on uh, DVD. It's available everywhere on DVD. Uh, Blu-ray, you can get it on Redbox. Amazon, Google, YouTube, Vudu, so anywhere that you want to plunk down a dollar ninety nine or two ninety nine to rent it, or you know, so if you don't have it, you know, very cheaply you can uh, buy a copy of the movie and watch along with us. Okay, so right here we're already got it queued up on the first frame of the movie with a picture. Or this picture is approved by the Production Code Administration of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America. Certificate number 768. And we're about ready to get it started. So countdown, folks. We'll go with three, two, one countdown and then go. All right. Three, two, one, go.
that little NRA members insignia in the background. <laughs> uh, there's something I love about that old-fashioned uh, Universal logo. And then the fact that they put Carl Lemley there, when it was his son, that was the big push for all these films. Oh, it was? Yeah, it was Junior that pushed really hard for this. And, and as usual, they just put up Karloff. Not Boris Karloff. He was synonymous just with his last name alone. It was kind of like a, you know, a Cher or a Madonna. He was a, he, he was a diva in his own right, you know. He just went by one name. Yeah, absolutely. And, he, you know, the first movie gave him such a lift in his career for being for getting such a boost at such a late stage in his career. Yeah, because he didn't make it big until the time he was in his late 30s, almost 40, before he really had it big. And the monster's mate is a question mark. Which it would be Elsa Lanchester that played both Mary Shelley and, and the monster's mate. You know, like, I like it's funny after all these years to still say, the monster's mate, who is she? Old Una O'Connor. She's hilarious. I got my notes here that, that Una is the MVP of this movie. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And of course, as all good movies start on a dark, dreary, stormy night. Big old freaking castle. Amazing miniature work that they used to do back in the day. Still holds up to this day. Oh yeah, absolutely. I love the tagline for this movie, The Monster Demands a Mate. And then we go see Uno Connor walking off screen, walking the dogs. Yeah. The only the only other person besides Elsa that plays two different characters yeah. in the movie. What I always loved about this scene was uh Lord Byron sitting there rolling his R's with everything he says. <laughs> right. Went through those arrows of lightning down at my unbowed head of George Gordon, Lord Byron. English greatest sinner. Yeah. <laughs> the fun fact, this is actually one of the many scenes in the movie that was altered. Yes. To cut out, to make it more appropriate because of uh, Shelley and her husband having a three, pretty much a three-way relationship with Lord Byron. Right. And Lord Byron's kind of a condescending asshole. A little bit, yeah. Because it's like, oh, she's such an astonishing creature. Look at that. It says something about her. Could you believe this bland brow, you know, came up with this amazingly, you know, insidious story? And it's just like, hey, asshole, you didn't come up with that story. Rifled graves. Shouldn't I write monsters? I love how they did this as a, as a way to like bookend the movie, and to kind of do the recap. Yeah. You know of the original Frankenstein, like that was just a great way to do it. You know, because every every sequel worth its weight has got to have a little bit of a recap from the original. Just a little bit, something to get everyone up to speed. And it's great because you don't necessarily have to see. Bride of Frankenstein 
you know, or seen the original Frankenstein to appreciate the bride Frankenstein. Although it really fucking helps. Really helps. I mean, you get that sense of exactly how Colin Clive is actually playing his, his, I'm sorry, Henry Frankenstein, not Victor. Victor was deemed an unmarketable name for the movie, so they changed him to Henry. Really? I don't understand that. Colin Clive was great, though. He played that tortured kind of anti-hero very well. Here's Lord Byron being condescending again. With these fragile little fingers, the pen, the nightmare. Yes, we all gotta go running when the fair maiden pricks her finger on the needle. <laughs> She's doing some cross-stitching, pricks her finger, two guys gotta come running. Oh my dear. Yeah, even though they cut the... The footage of them, you know, that alluded to them kind of having a three-way or threesome or whatever. It's highly apparent. <laughs> yeah. Very, very, very apparent. Like, yeah, they're both very sweet on her. And think about it, it's almost uncomfortable looking at it. <laughs> right. And again, great miniature work here. Just the matte paintings of the background, the sky alone, they're, they're just gorgeous. I can't even imagine, you know, the logistics of having to do stuff like that back in the day. Now they would just do it with CGI. Yeah. Oh, Una again. Una O'Connor is just frantic and manic. She's great. She's, she's great comic relief. Oh, this. yeah, absolutely. Sassy. Oh, yeah. She's wonderful. <laughs> I love that she's like it's the best fire I've ever seen and here comes the fucking ineffective Virgo master does more whining complaining than he does anything else <laughs> It's always about every man and woman needs to be back in bed. Everybody would be in bed at a decent hour like this, you know? Yeah, we wouldn't have these issues if everyone was in bed. He does have a magnificent mustache, though. I'll give him that much. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. You don't quite see him like that anymore. <laughs> I think there's a reason for that. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Too much maintained. It's like that. We want no rioting, no riots. <laughs> but who's writing? <laughs> oh, she's great. She is. Just pure sass. I loved her in The Invisible Man, too, as the innkeeper. Oh, yeah, yeah. She kind of became a universal staple there for a little while. This movie's riddled with contract players for Universal. I mean, you got everybody from Karloff to her to Dwight Fry. Good old Dwight Fry starting out with as Renfield, kicking things off with Dracula. Yeah. It was a shame he got typecast the way he did, you know, and kind of 
Because he was very, uh, what I understand, was a very versatile uh, theatrical actor, but he just kind of got a little, little, little screwed over that way. Now, this character, Hans, is the father, and him and his wife were the, the parents of Maria, the little girl who was drowned by the creature in the first movie. Mm -hmm. But his name, I think, was Ludwig in the, first, in the first movie, and they changed his name to Hans, Hans in this one. one. Well, yeah, no, I mean, he just had to go and see and make sure that the, the, the creature was all burned up. And he's about to fucking find out. With the slow draw of the monster coming out of the crevice. Just the sheer makeup work on there. And I never noticed it, too, till I watched the, uh, the documentary on it. Clive Barker pointed out, and, uh, shit, I can't think of the other, other person's, Rick Baker, there we go, noticed that there was an additional clamp put onto his forehead that wasn't there in the first film. Oh, no, I didn't notice that. I always just noticed that, like, the front of his hair was all singed off from the fire, and they kind of did a little bit of burn makeup on him, but I didn't realize it had an extra clamp. Yeah, if you watch the first one, you can see it, it's off to what would be the right side of his head, and then this one, now there's a second one over to the left that wasn't there before. And, you know, just beautiful makeup work done by Jack Pierce. Yeah, Jack Pierce, again, an MVP here. His, oh, Una, look out behind you. <laughs> Her reaction here. <laughs> fucking love that woman she's great she is it's and i love how like oh frank it's i just look you know looks at her just like i'm not even gonna bother chasing this mission. yeah no, i'm not, not worth my time <laughs> she literally her facial expressions look like she literally could have been drawn into a scooby-doo cartoon <laughs> but already two deaths right off the, the beginning hans and his wife the monster likes to, to drown people. That's his forte. He likes to either strangle them or, or, or drown them. And interestingly enough, this movie actually has less deaths than the first one. I know, but it was... 10... 20, 21 in the first one and 10 in this one. Yep. Oh, milady, how can we tell you? Now, it's not the same actress. I know Mae West. Yeah, we got Valerie Hobson here playing Elizabeth this time. Yeah. Only 17 in this role. Yeah, she was way young. She was 17. And she was 17 and Colin Clive was in his 30s. 30, he was 35, so yeah, it wouldn't fly today. Would not fly today. And of course here, Una playing, you know, Minnie is the, the harbinger of doom. She's trying to tell everybody that, you know... He ain't burnt to no skeleton. He's still there until he tells her, go bite your tongue off. We don't believe in ghosts. And I love her line here. Wash my hands of it. With them all being murders in the, murdered in their beds for all the me I care. And she just doesn't tell anybody else. She's just like, well, she tell, tell him the one guy. Yep. And she's like, I'm done. I'm out. <laughs> yeah, she checked out. And great locations are the, the sets for this. That's something that was just, it's never been replicated since the, uh, well, I mean, the Universal Horror Days and the Hammer Horror Days were good for their locations and their set pieces, but ever since then, man, 
just large and cavernous. I, I, I just love the aesthetic of it. I want a little castle like that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the fact that here everybody's just like, oh, he'll never speak again. He's dead. Boom. He just all of a sudden breathes and moves his arm and everybody just stops crying. It's just like, did nobody ever, back then, ever check, check for pulse? You know, how many people do you want to think back in those days were buried alive because they were maybe just unconscious? <laughs> yeah. That's a scary thought. I've never, uh, I've had nightmares about that before. Yeah, the one weird thing about this movie, and it's not a detriment to the movie, it doesn't, it's not a negative in any way, but it is a little weird when you go to watch from original Frankenstein to Bride, and Elizabeth starkly changes from, she's, much taller in this, got long dark hair, and in the original she was much more petite, short, and had the, the short blonde hair. hair. It's just very physically different. It's back when a time when no one really cared about continuity, to an extent. They just figured people would never notice. Right. Like, it's also one of the last great movies where they, even though it was a short 46-day shoot, they actually took their time and effort into this before it started becoming like a factory rollout for the films going forward. Yeah, and it was such a short film for being a 46-day shoot, you know? Was it 74 minutes, I think, with credits? Yeah. Here you can tell, even though he has regrets of creating the creature, he is still fucking manic as hell. He's like, I created a race of men and bred my own race. And it's like, you're still a little crazy, man. Still a little crazy. He still, you know, like he quotes, he still feels like he wants, he intends to know the secret of life. No, Colin Clive, man, it, what did he die, two, three years after this was made? from uh, complications of tuberculosis and if it hadn't been tuberculosis the alcoholism would have gotten him soon thereafter yeah a lot of rampant alcoholism back in these days you know kind of like how we had discussed already you know the cinematographer on this movie did a fantastic job and he was drunk most of the time they filmed this movie which says something to because he Phenomenal job is shot beautifully. And Elizabeth is losing her shit. Let's say, yeah, John Mescal. He's did excellent work. Excellent, excellent work. And now we're gonna get an introduction to the real villain of the piece. Dr. Pretorius, I mean Pretorius. <laughs> I still, I'm, I'm, there's something about me that's just a little kid that every time I hear his name, is I just think <clears throat> Pretorius, Pretorius. In the great introduction, they open it up. He looks like the uh, the Reverend from Poltergeist too. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I thought that too. He's just got those piercing eyes, just that stare. And they got him lit so good that underlit kind of way about him. I love how Jesus forces his way into his into the house and is like, okay, I guess we'll just like let this fucking creepy old bastard in. <laughs> Freaking Una, ding, 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 just 
<laughs> the way she walks. Just shuffling across the floor. I love it. Yeah, you know this guy has trouble from the get-go. All you have to do is see that crazy, like, he's got that hair like uh, a racer head in David Lynch. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, they don't ever mention his first name, but it's Septimus Praetorius. Septimus? Septimus. Huh. Which, when I was looking it up, it's literally a Latin translation for seven deadly sins, which they use to get, kind of give you a hint as to the nature of his character. Nice. I think what the director's name was Ernest Thessinger. Yeah. Um, He's got great presence. Absolutely. He was actually... Uh, James Whale's mentor, his acting mentor, huh. from his early days, and thought he would be the perfect role. But that was after Universal was actually trying to push Lugosi and Claude Rains on him for this role. Oh, I would have loved to have seen Lugosi in this. Lugosi's my boy. I like Lugosi. But still, I can't imagine it without this guy in it. Without, you know, Ernest, it would have been... You know, it still would have been good with Bella. He would have brought something totally different to the role. Though. Oh, absolutely. The movie would have had a different, I feel like, with different tone. He's, this one, he's very much, Thessinger is very topsy-turvy, very manic himself. Not quite there with Colin Clive's Henry, but <laughs> he's right up there. I love those, those couple times during the movie he talks about cigars and he talks about gin and he always says they're my only vice and it's just like wait a minute your only vice but that's like three different vices man right <laughs> my only vice is gin nope my only vice is cigars nope nope but say again my only vice is resurrecting dead people and here we have blackmail i love how he basically tells him like yeah you know you're responsible for all these murders since you created the creature and i'm gonna let everybody know it Now, the deal with the devil is being spoken. We need to further probe the mysteries of life and death. He's so condescending here. He's just like, oh, it's so sad, very sad. But you know, <laughs> it's kind of one of those you know that I know. Yeah, he, he treats it like it's an addiction. Like, you... You've already started. You know you can't stop it. It feels good. Keep going. <laughs> right. It's kind of like, hey, the first hit was free, and now you got to pay for it. Right. You hell baron. But it really doesn't take much for him to convince, you know, you know, Colin to to go, and he's just like. He was like, I gotta show you what I got. And he's like, I must know. I've got to see it. It doesn't take him very much time to be completely convinced. Like, okay, yeah, I'll go with you. And one of the many, many, many shots of Colin Clive doing very little movement uh, yeah. due to him breaking his leg. Yeah, it was riding a horse, wasn't it? A horse yeah. riding accident? Horse riding accident and broke his leg. So they filmed him sitting down for a majority of the film. You can kind of tell he's got a hitch in his getty up whenever he does kind of move around. 
probably in shots like this, obviously, it's probably a double one. I almost bet money on it. But yeah, a lot of shots of him sitting down. And inside Pretorius' lap. And again, beautiful set. You get that cramped feeling to it. Would you like a drink? Gin. It's my only weakness. Weakness number one, that is. Yeah, I never trust a man to drink straight gin. Just saying. That most famous line, to a new world of gods and monsters. Because wasn't the of gods and monsters the name of the movie with Ian McKellen that uh, was based on James Whale's life? Yeah, Ian McKellen and Brendan Fraser. Great movie. I haven't seen that in years. Actually, uh, I own a copy. Couldn't find it, so I just decided to buy it on Voodoo just to watch it again, just for kicks, and I still love every minute of it. That is a great line, though. It, it honestly almost rings true now to nowadays, too, if you think about it. Uh, we have people like um, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, who are kind of looked at as like financial gods, bringing mm -hmm. things, and then we've got our monsters. Uh, won't really mention who that is. <laughs> <Yeah>. Former president. <coughs> <coughs> Last president. <coughs> Sorry, I cleared my throat there. Right. <laughs> I love this sequence. He brings out what is essentially a child's coffin that he's keeping. Because that's what it looks like to me. It's just a yeah. very small child's coffin that he's keeping these little black vials in. And again, just James Wells' vision and his directorial skills for this scene. Like, the technical skills to pull this off is amazing. The reveal of his first creation, the queen. And like this... It kind of is like reminiscent of like, well, not reminiscent, this came out 50 years beforehand, but like of uh, Dollman of the creating these little 10 to 12 inch tall people. Oh, yeah. And we got, got the horny little king. And he even says, I got to be careful with the king, so we're going to put him over here as far away from the queen as possible. What's this? That would be the archbishop. Yeah, that's always sleeping. Now, how he says he's a very, the, do I flatter myself because the, the little devil looks a lot like me? That was um, the actor who played Pretorius. That's his stand-in. Yeah. That played the, played the devil. And the fucking king is just like, he's so horny, he's escaping. He's like, I'm going to go bust the queen out of this jar. get busy. I mean, we might be 12 inches tall, but we gotta get busy in here. Right. Got that little prince to make. And back right into his throne again he goes. And he gives up pretty easy. Well, then again, he does put the teacup on his. <laughs> the ballerina. He was a real ballerina. Absolutely. Real ballerina. I liked how that first shot, you can tell it's almost like a figurine in there because the legs are just posed just differently. And then he pulls that up. Oh, I forgot about the, the, mermaid, the mermaid that he made magically out of seaweed. Yep. And then if you look, the only shot where you see the extra 
the extra jar that has the the baby, which was played very, by a very young uh, character actor named Billy Barty, who was in like Masters of the Universe, uh, uh, Night Patrol, hundred hundred other movies. But they cut every every shot and every sequence of him out of here, except for that one wide shot. I guess if there's really any one thing that's disappointing about this movie is that they never expanded upon those little people that Pretorius had created. Yeah, They were no. just introduced. It was, it was just a neat oddity, you know, but just, I would uh, like to just, see more of it. Yeah, just to wet Frankenstein's taste, just to get him driven to go back into it again. Yep. I mean, and I hate to say it because I'm not advocating alcoholism at all, but I think Colin... Clive's uh, rampant alcohol abuse like lent well to the betrayal of his character in this, you know. So I mean, James Whale was right by keeping him in here. Yeah, recasting him would have been a great disservice. And then you know another of the great lines was Pretorius taught, quoting the Bible, um, saying how how you know, the line got changed originally. As he said, if you you know he talks about multiplying and recreating and then he's like if you you know if you believe in bible stories which the line was originally changed if you like fairy tales yeah and they considered that to be uh sacrilegious and they made them cut it they just changed it to bible stories even the sheep are scared of him they're like man we get the fuck away from frankenstein And again, Frank, you know, Preacher's just not, not hurting anybody, not starting anything. He just wants some food, just some drink. Definitely got some self-esteem issues. <laughs> yeah. Self-image issues all abound. Poor Shepherdess here, she hardly uh, gets away with her life. I love that shot where his eyes look hollow, like pure black. I don't know why, just something about it is just captivating. Of course, now he's trying to do the right thing and help her. He's even like patting her hand, you know? I mean, he's just like, hey, you alright? He's like, okay, shut up, shut up. I'm trying to help you here. And, of course, these two assholes are going to show up and shoot poor Frankie. He ain't hurt nobody. He's like, God, God damn it, man. <laughs> and, of course, the thing, you know, <clears throat> we can start to notice is that Karloff, obviously, he famously did not want to be able to speak in this film. No, at no, all. He, he did not want to talk. He, uh, he argued that point quite a bit. And unfortunately, he had to leave his partial plate in, which gave him that fuller face. But the other thing was, it, it, the first movie, he was basically a starving artist. He was super gaunt in that film. Oh, yeah. And hitting the fame from that one, his own daughter has even joked that, yeah, he made money off of that one. And he started to eat a little bit better, and he <laughs> yeah. packed on the weight. But at the same time he packed on this weight, he lost 20 pounds filming this movie. They said he had gained 20 pounds in between 
making the first one and bride here. And then he lost another 20 pounds while wearing the suit and everything because he you know, sweated with so much makeup on. And that padding. Jesus, I can't imagine the weight of that padding. Well, and then and running he, wet like he is right now. Yeah, there's a lot of shots of him laying down in between and behind the scenes of him laying down in between shots because he had the rest like he was tore up. Now, he had some pretty bad arthritis, and I know like wearing this makeup and this outfit and whatnot did not do matters for him any any any, any kind of good whatsoever. Oh, no. Well, his, his back injury from the first one, having to carry Klong, Colin Clive up the, up the mound, up through to the windmill, and... He originally did not get along with James Whale because he thought James Whale was doing it on purpose, making him repeatedly do it over and over as a punishment. Oh, really? See, I did not know that. And our first glimpse of Dwight Fry. And that goddamn Burgomaster. With his horrible hairpiece. It did not take the townspeople long to, to gather their mob and... Get get old uh, get old Frank or the creature bound to get bound up. There she goes, getting all excited. I'll bind him. <laughs> yeah, she, she might have been into a little less than them. I'll bind him myself. Let me tie him up. Well, I'm sure this was painful as hell for Boris. Again, kind of religious iconography here. You know, him kind of being trussed up like Jesus was. Yep. He's almost crucified. And again, poor monster. He didn't ask for any of this. He was trying to save a girl from drowning. He just wants to be loved and left alone. <laughs> what I think is funny is for all their trouble here, Tying him up, taking him down in this dungeon. They're going to chain him up. What was it last? Two minutes? If that, <laughs> yeah. And we're back at it again. Just seems like a whole lot of work just to have him trussed up on that big pole and maneuvering him around just to get him back into that chair. This is only dialogue for half the movie. You know, I can understand where Karloff didn't want to have the aesthetic of him speaking. You know, you know, he would have rather than remain silent and just kind of grunt and then growl. But I kind of like the fact when he starts talking that it shows that he was like evolving. You know, yeah, he was. He was. You know, showing his humanity that in part he had more humanity to him than the people who created him. And in some, you know, in some part, you know, he kind of had to eat crow because he didn't think it'd be good for the role, and it made it. It does. It makes it better. Yeah. And they just leave him. That's like him, the Burgomaster again. Total, total fuck nugget, man. He just. <laughs> He's just like, well, that's enough of that. We spent too much time with this. and Let's go and leave him be. And here he is in 30 seconds. He's pulling those chains right up out of the ground and breaking them. What doesn't get me, though, it takes him 30 seconds to tell, to pull all that off. He couldn't fight off that group of villagers. Not yeah. a one. He couldn't fight off the group of villagers or snap those ropes, but he 
pulled those chains out of the ground. I think he just had to get angry. Just a little bit. Kind of like he had to hulk out there for a minute. <laughs> Now, I don't know if they filmed this in sequence, but I did read that they had to stop filming for a couple of days after they filmed the opening windmill scene at the beginning because uh, Karloff had fell down and, and dislocated, his hip. Yeah, dislocated his hip. Yeah, he's pretty much spent the entirety of the shoot in pain from what I was reading. He had to be iced down. He had to use heating pads and ice being iced down frequently in between takes. But a trooper, man. He stuck with it. Gotta suffer for your craft sometimes. Ah, been there. Not quite to this extent, I'll have to say, but I'm like, I've been there. So, I love how this, this is a little slip. They, they call it, start calling her Mrs. Newman... And then a second here, they're going to start calling her Frau. <laughs> Where's his wife, Frau Newman? <laughs> Mrs. Newman to Frau Newman in two seconds. Now, this was a scene here with the gypsies that was added in after test screenings were were done. Yeah. Uh, the gypsies here were, were the creature happens upon them out in the woods and just trying to get up on some of that roast chicken that they're making. Again, he just, he, one, he just wants to be loved and he just wants food. Whoever stomach he's got was in safe with appetite, man. Always. <laughs> he just wanted to eat. Always. But always a good universal trope. They always got to throw gypsies in there just for the entertainment. Yeah. Like when he gets in there, he's like sniffing like, hey, man. What you making there? A little roast chicken? He literally just kind of waves at it. Waves his arm like, hey, can, can, can I have some? What are you doing mm -hmm. with it? Creature learning that fire bad. Now this is a scene that will never be the same for me after watching Young Frankenstein. Absolutely. <laughs> I still get to the end of it and I still want to say, but I was going to make espresso. <laughs> Again, there he kind of had that hollow look in his eyes, or his eyes were kind of blacked out. Yeah, classic stuff. And this is such a sad sequence when the guy, you know, the blind man, the blind hermit is just, you know, I'm so lonely here. It's been years since I've had a, someone in here in my hut, and my, I had a friend, and again, somebody who just shunned by society, just wanted a, just wanted a fucking friend. Yeah. You know, and the blind man, uh, played by O.P., O.P. Hagee, uh, he was actually the first choice that Whale had for this role, the only choice he had, and actually shut production down for two full weeks until he finished production on an RKO product picture at that time. Really? 
Damn. Well, it was a good choice. The guy sells it. He's one of the most memorable performances in the probably the whole like Frankenstein series. I also always wonder like, you know, what happened with little subsequent characters like this. Like, where did the blind hermit go? Because like when the hunters show up and they take him away, his hut's burned down. So now he's a blind man who doesn't even have a hut to live in. Where does he go? <laughs> they probably usher him to the nearest cave and be like, "Here you go, nice warm, dry spot for you." Here's a rock for a pillow. Fuck off. Ah, <laughs> uh, the decline of how we used to take care of her. Poor old people. And I just, I love the look on his face. Like, he's so happy and so excited to have found someone who's being welcoming and nice to him for once. Yeah, somebody who doesn't run or scream when they see him. Because, well, he's not can't see him but somebody who doesn't react in fear and in anger he's just poor monster you know and I you know I do realize like you know Karloff talking about you know wanting to not speak for this role and wanting to you know he had to put in his uh, his dentures you know so to make him you know his face was a little bit more fuller but it's barely noticeable I mean, it's oh, yeah. just slightly noticeable. I honestly, watching this many, many times as a kid, I had never paid attention to it whatsoever. I just figured, oh, horse gained weight between shoots, and that's all I thought. <laughs> <laughs> right? Someone should do a deep fake of this and put, uh, <laughs> put Gene Hackman's Face over the hermits in this one. That would that, be great. That, yeah, it would be great. <laughs> and again, Young Frankenstein. Great, great fucking movie. Absolutely. One of the best. I don't think a day goes by that I don't at least quote that movie at least once a day. <laughs> right. I cannot see and you cannot speak. Good. It's a perfect marriage. There you go. This guy is pretty welcoming. He's just like, here, come in, sit in my house. Don't know you. No, you can't speak. I'm not weirded out. Just have some food. You can tell he's pretty well trained because he just he just dips that bowl right in with that soup and scoops it up like it's nothing. God sent me a friend. It's so fucking sad. He's talking about it's so lonely here, you know. It's just it's a cool old guy. He's like, you know, I will take care of you. You will comfort me. Probably first bit of rest that monsters had in a while. Shit, in a while, probably ever. ever. <laughs> right. <laughs> The one, probably one really decent person in this movie is the Hermit. Oh, absolutely. 
Well, him and, and Elizabeth, I guess, you know, she kind of goes a little bit wackaloo in there to, for a bit, but she's still a good person. Oh, yeah. Just Hermit has no ulterior motive. All he just wants is just to have companionship. And he sells it, too. Like, Yeah, he sells it hard. And so does Boris, man. I mean, like, the... The tears, the like, tear just rolled down his cheek. And he, pat, you know, patting him on the back, showing that the monster has, like, held a lot more compassion than any of his fellow men. He cries with the, you know, he cries with the fucking old man, and, you know, without this hermit, he wouldn't have, probably have learned any kind of humanity. And there we go. His first word, Bread. It's the way to do it. Just get a mouthful of it and run with it. Messy freaking eater, but you know. So, other cool part that I looked into this too is before they started filming, Whale sat down with a psychiatrist and they determined that the monster would be about mentally about 10 years old and went through and looked at a bunch of essays and tests by, of 10 year olds and picked out a hundred words that they think the monster would only be able to say huh. and then pretty much equated because of his need to have a mate that they gave him a teenager's emotional intelligence it's pretty intricate there though when you think about it that, yeah that's putting a lot of forethought into a character Creature likes a good drink, a good cigar, good food, good music. I mean, he's pretty well cultured for a, supposed to be a monster. For a man who's only been brought back to life for a short amount of time, yeah. That was interesting. They took uh, the kids' essays and just picked out the words like that. That's cool. No, no, fire is good. He's like, <laughs> one of them to say, like, have you seen me? Oh, wait, no, sorry. <laughs> nope. Like, how he's rubbing his arm there. He's like, he's like, hey, hey, you see these burns? <laughs> like, oh, my bad, never mind. You don't, you can't see that. He's like, here, play some music, please. Almost like a dance monkey dance. <laughs> There were no iPods back in the day here, and all they had was a violin. And here comes another uh, big star. Wouldn't wouldn't quite be such a big star right now, but uh, one of the two hunters, he became quite big with Universal in some monster movies. John Carradine was one of the two hunters. If I remember right, he uh, played Dracula, didn't he? Yes. Yeah, that's what I thought. I think it was in um, Horror of Dracula. And God, like hundreds of movies. I mean, the, the man, John Carradine, probably had a good 200 credits, so I'd be willing to bet. I'd have to look it up, but I'm sure he had at least that many. 
easily. I mean, they could they pumped out film after film after film in those days. And there we go. Poor old man's hut just up in smoke. As they're taking away, my friend, my poor friend, why did you do this? And he's like, they're not giving him any kind of insight to him. Like, nope, he's just a monster. We have to, we have to kill him and we burn down your place. Sorry. That puff of flame there about got Karloff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, that came within inches of his head. A little bit of trivia of the little the group of girls and kids that he runs into there. Mm -hmm. The little girl that goes, look, is the same actress who played uh, Maria, the girl that got drowned in the original Frankenstein. Yeah. Yeah, and actually, Whale gave her that speaking line so that she would get paid more for her appearance in that film because he liked her so much. He didn't want her just to get a crappy little paycheck for just being on screen. He wanted her to get something more for it. Oh, that was cool of him. James Whale, good guy. Yeah, from what I've, all I've researched, he was, a, he was eccentric in his filmmaking, but he made it always really comfortable for his cast and crew. Like, everyone was always... For the most part, really happy to work with him, except for poor Carla, who had to carry Colin Clive in the first one <laughs> repeatedly up, up a mountain. But he must have forgave him. He did this one in uh, they did uh, the old Dark House together. The too. old Dark House, yeah. Which I think, unless I'm mistaken, was James Whale's last horror movie. Uh. I think it was his second one. His second one because then he did Invisible Man and then this one. Okay. So this was his last one with Universal. They buried people in style back in the day, didn't they? They sure did. That's what I say... How did uh, the monster know that there was an underground crypt underneath that statue? You know why? Because he wrote in the script. He wrote in the script. Because <laughs> <laughs> he had to run into Pretorius with uh, Ludwig and Carl. Good old Dwight Fry. He was always in his, played in eccentric, weird parts. So I think he was destined for it after playing Renfield, unfortunately. But fortunately for him, but fortunate for us because he's. He's a great character actor. Right. Playing Carl here, Fritz in the previous one. Yep. And, you know, I'm, I'll backtrack. I was just thinking about when we were talking about the gypsy scene. It's the only scene in the film that does not have a score to it because it was shot at the last minute just before the release of the film. Also, they didn't have time to make... Didn't have time score. to go back and rescore that portion of it. And, you know, the thing is, it's hardly noticeable if, when you think about it. It's such a quick, quick scene. It is a quick scene. Digging up bodies. Isn't that how, like, most of like, the Universal Horror movies started back in the day? with somebody digging up a dead body? Usually. Someone being buried or someone getting dug up. <laughs> it's a sick world, but we're happy guys, people. Just, again, the lighting in here, the German expressionistic filming on these films is just... 
every for every frame of this movie looks like a painting. Absolutely. You, know, you could take one frame from any point of this movie and it would make an art piece. I mean, like, look at that, like those arched ceilings and the fucking vaulted. Uh, With the light just shining down on the one coffin, it just, it speaks for itself. I love him. Breaking out his bottle of gin, some roast, a couple of cigars while they're digging up some poor 19-year-old girl that they're going to use for their experiments. He's just like, well, this is a perfect time to smoke a cigar, have a shot of gin, eat this nasty old roast that I'm laying on top of a coffin. I mean, <laughs> and then we're just going to laugh and chuckle at his skull. Because, hey, that's what good supervillains do. That right? is what good supervillains do. Hey, this guy's got a cigar. I like cigars. He has booze. I also like booze. Just a look at the way that's lit. That is so fucking beautiful. And that's how he gets in the monster's good graces by just going, Oh, I thought I was alone. Well, good evening, sir. So, another cool thing about this movie... uh the composer on the film. This was one of the first movies where they used musical cues for different characters. So Karloff has a string that is at certain points it mimics his growl. Ah. Like the way the way the notes play, it's supposed to be his growl. And then any time that Mary Shelley, or eventually when we get to the bride, that da 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 that's yeah. supposed to be her musical cue. So this first time they had actually had like themes or cues for the characters. characters. Yeah. And this and this score was which is beautiful as it is, they actually recycled it a couple times. They got used later on for uh Buck Rogers and the Flash Gordon serials. Yep, I did read that somewhere. Music. I love how he says here, you make man like me, it's like, no, woman, mate for you. And he's like, I want friend like me. <laughs> Those eyebrows he's got, man. They're working overtime. Oh, absolutely. Some people, I have to say it, are just born to play villains. Oh, yeah. He definitely had it. Another great line. I love dead, hate living. So many great iconic lines from this. But I like how he basically tells him, he says, I'm just going to use your just strong arm to get what we want. <laughs> Knowing full well that the monster is not smart enough to pick up on that, you know. Absolutely. Tell those old gears and Pretorius's head is just a turn. In. And then we're right back again to the wonderful mini, Una. And Henry trying to pack up and get the hell out of there while he still can. Not work out for him. So it's a little awkward because obviously this film was made in the 30s. The outfits they wear are very much timepieces of the 30s, mm -hmm. but it's left to allude to you that this film actually takes place around 1912 based on a 
if you pay really close attention in the previous scene, the bottle that Praetorius drinks from, the bottle is labeled that it was 1912. Good eye, sir. I never picked up on that. I always just assumed it was like 1890 or early, early 1900s, but yeah, 1912 would be about right. Crazy eyes. <laughs> Once again, Colin, manic as hell. Probably jonesing for a drink. And sitting down nursing that broken leg. And you know, the always, not just Universal Studios, but I, I would say just overall Universal trope. Everyone's got an English accent. There's yeah. there's Henry's supposed to be German and we get a full on English accent from Colin Clive. <laughs> like how he says he's like, There's nothing you can do to convince me. He's like, Oh really? Let me show you some show what I got behind door number one. Right. It, it like that just sit the fuck down, sir. Just like the boy, he just sits right down. (laughs) Like, what do you want? You know. That smug look on Praetorius' face, it's genius. I love what comes up here in a second when he makes the the monster leave and he's closing the door and he's like, no. (laughs) He's like, like, we got a plan, stick to the plan, Stan. Come on. Nothing can make me go on with it. Well, you'll see here in a moment. You, we'll get your, we'll get you moving. Like that, just that little like low growl. Like, no, like, and you know what he's gonna do. You don't have to ever have had to see this movie to know what they're gonna do. Oh yeah. Just the look on his face, the foreshadowing right there alone was enough. They were almost out. Pretorius had been, what, an hour later? They were probably missed him. Done and gone. <laughs> Famous last words. I should be all right. What's that like they said in Scream? I'll be right back. <laughs> Candy Graham. Candy Graham for Mungo. <laughs> Wait, wrong, wrong uh, Mel Brooks movie. Wrong Mel Brooks film. Oops. Yeah, you can tell he's got a hitch in his giddy up when he moves. Her hysterical screaming. Just such the -the over-the-top acting and stuff. She's great. I know we've said that here like a hundred times already. A hundred times, but it just... (laughs) Bears repeating. She just chews up the scene every time she's in one.
the thing is, you know, he's Pretorius here is saying he's like, I swear to you, the Baroness will be returned. She'll be returned safely. But if he had gotten his way and things had went right, I have no doubt that he would have killed the Baroness. Still, I don't oh, think yeah. he'd let. I don't think he'd let her live. Rubber bat. Because what's the scene in the cave without some rubber bats? He's down between a rock and a hard place, man. Help me this final experiment. I'm putting your chocolate in my peanut butter. <laughs> and here we go back with the infamous lab equipment again which they would actually use the original equipment for young Frankenstein and young Franklin it's been used in quite a bit like, uh, what did I read it was actually used in um, some band's uh, concert tour they used it as set pieces wasn't it um didn't Korn use it at one point for one of their set pieces? I don't remember. I'm probably way off. But yeah, I know there was a band that used the original lab equipment. This is the point where I feel like there must have been some stuff cut out. Because they made the transition to the, the, to the lab pretty quickly. And once again... I believe, if I remember right, it included that a whole subplot with Carl killing his aunt and uncle and trying to blame it on the monster. Yes, I did read about that. I might have, this probably would have been right where it was. Because Carl and Ludwig, they were both some slimy dudes. I mean, just getting paid to rob graves for Pretorius. Love all this old equipment. Oh, absolutely. Poor Carl, that probably showed up on his career aptitude test. You know, you're going to be a grave digger, digging up bodies. <laughs> the heart doesn't work, so bring me another one. Just bring me another heart. This would be easy. You must be sound and young. <laughs> like that, you must go with your friend to the accident hospital. Like, was there a specific accident hospital? Right. literally does everything but do the yes yes master almost and he doesn't he doesn't have the hunch nope nope so that wait a minute now that I think about it that means uh Karloff's creature the monster kills Dwight Fry twice huh I never really thought of it that way until now I think you know, back in the day, which made what made this so horrific was the implication of what was going on. Like you just seen him throw a bag over the girl's head, the random girl's head, and then the next thing you know, he's just got a heart for him. So you know, that even though they don't show it, because they never would have back then, then. these days. You know, in a Rob Zombie movie today, they would have showed somebody cutting, 
her heart out and just ripping it straight out the chest. Yeah. But just the implication of land, yeah, this guy probably knocked her over the head, struck her off somewhere secluded, and cut her heart out. I mean, that was what was so horrific was more of what was what was implied back then as opposed to what they showed you. Yeah, letting your imagination run wild. And you know, I can admit I'm a fan of both. I'm a fan of, you know, the what is seen and what is not seen. I mean, both styles of filmmaking. They're both both have their place. <laughs> He's like, work now. Finish, then sleep. Slave driver. Well, hey, the preacher was pissed off. He was like, what are you doing here falling asleep? <laughs> asleep right. man? You're supposed to be making me a mate. Let's see, we're going to use the monster's vices against him and spike his drink. And keep him sedated. That was some fast acting shit. <laughs> Alright, so I had to look it up because it's driving me nuts. The lab equipment, specifically the lightning machine, uh, was used... For Kiss's uh, Spirit of '76 tour, uh, I knew that I knew there was a band somewhere that used it because that poor lab equipment got tossed around and used quite a bit by everybody. They probably got the mileage out of that man renting it out. No, as he says, this electrical machine here you can use. You can talk to her, and she can talk to you and hear you. Would this be the first, like, quote unquote, first telephone? Would the Pretorius kind of have a, uh... Would ha know. Yeah, it would have to be. That's why I kind of made a note of that. I was just like, would this be the first appearance of a telephone in a movie? It was enough. He got about two words out of Elizabeth and he knew she was alive, so it got him... Jazzed up enough to keep on working. The angles of these shots, too. Really. Oh, those kind of Dutch angles. The Dutch angles, yeah. You know, Sam Raimi's really good about using those, too, for a lot of his films. Yeah, Sam Raimi took shots like that and just ran with them. I love these angles. Like I said, every every shot of this movie is like perfect. That just goes to the precise nature of James Whale. Like mm -hmm. And again, that magnificent matte paintings and some the miniature of that castle with the flames coming off the top. That's gorgeous. I will say one thing, they're awfully lucky that every time they go to do one of these experiments that is storming, but then again in these European countries that they're supposed to be in, these, you know, nameless European countries, they're always a fucking thunderstorm and lightning. Always a storm. Where the hell are you guys living at? Seattle? 
And I just love no, how they... I, they're, they're in Ohio. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I like how they pick up that phone and they're like, oh, the great storm is coming. Who's telling you? <laughs> right. Who's on the other end of the line? What the fuck? I thought the way they had the bride wrapped up here that it kind of gave her very uh, much a mummy type look. Oh, yeah. Of course, you know, we need kites. Kites fix everything. <laughs> Fly the kites. Key to life is uh, something Ben Franklin came up with. Key tied to a kite and some lightning. Doors are opening up and we're raising the, bringing down the lightning machine. The scientific stuff like, send down the wires, send up the kites. Like, okay. said once again with that wide shot bet any money that was not Clive running up those stairs oh no I don't think he's running right now the hair looked until he turned the hair looked way too different That, that was him coming down the stairs, that's for sure. Maybe he was having a good day. Maybe that was on the last day of filming. Right. He's like, hey, my legs had an extra 40-some-odd days to heal up. Now, what I noticed here in the ending, too, especially with this sequence, is they went in for a lot of rapid-fire close-ups, which was not a style that they did back in those days, to go in those... You know, punching in for a lot of those close-ups of you know Henry and Pretorius and the lightning machines going off. They always did like wide shots. They didn't do those kind of, you know, the median of shots were was much longer back in the day. Yeah, no, no quick cuts. Makes me wonder, you know, with all the, the smoke, the fire, the sparks going everywhere, the electrical current that they had flowing everywhere, how many people got shocked? <laughs> like, shocked? The only thing I was wondering about, like, look at all those sparks falling. They have that poor girl wrapped up in dry linen. She's literally a tinderbox waiting to happen. <laughs> right. And not only that, like, around all those torches going off and sparks flying everywhere, like, I hope they had somebody with, like, a couple fire extinguishers close by. Oh, absolutely. Don't worry, they probably had all those rags soaked in tur turpentine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, great shot there. Victoria's just looking as evil as all get out. 
Oh, can't keep a good monster down. Oh, poor Ludwig and Carl never knew what was going to hit him. Here we go again. Dwight Fry's second death by Karloff. Pretty much dying the same way. Pretty much. And just that musical cue, like, aha, success achievement. Because, you know, sciencey science. Sciencey science. Like, yep, just raise up some kites into the air, hooked up some electrodes, and juice that body straight up, and you know, wait for three bolts of random lightning, and then there you go. That's there life. you go. That's... Still love it though. <laughs> as ridiculous as, as some of it is, is still love it. And the first signs of life little twitchy finger twitch. I also love how this scene is recycled and used in Weird Science. Another one of my favorite movies. Oh, yeah. Alive. Alive. I think that, I can't remember where that is ranked, but that is was ranked in one of the top 100 movie lines of all time. I can't remember where it placed, but it's up there. But this movie holds a lot of quotes that are ranked in like the top 100 movie quotes of all time. Hey, somebody grab her. She's gonna she's gonna roll up. I'm out of there. And you know what's uh, pretty cool is that Elsa Lanchester. She was a short little thing. Five foot four, I Five foot four, and they made her wear stilts to make her seven foot tall, not including that glorious hair piece that she's wearing. Bride of Frankenstein. She was beautiful, though. Absolutely oh, gorgeous. Oh, just that classic kind of beauty. I can't... I can't Even that hair is just, like, <laughs> is iconic, man. can't imagine the torture that she went through being like wrapped up so tightly well they said that she could hardly one she could hardly walk she could hardly move and that she couldn't even like move her hands and so they had to feed her with a straw I mean, they, i've read that somewhere she was for even though it was only five five minutes or less of, of screen time that she had that she was in that stuff for days days So where it took roughly five hours to put Karloff into makeup, it took three hours to put her into it. And her hissing. I love her hissing. She got her hissing from being from living in London. Uh, I don't remember the name of the little lake or pond that she lived by, but the swans, yep. the swans that lived there would hiss, and she just said they were nasty little creatures, and so she emulated it. Yep, that's where she got the little the little head tilt that she would do, the kind of bird-like head tilt and the hisses and the spitting. I did read that somewhere, yeah. But poor, poor creature. They create him a bride, and the first thing she does when she looks at him is scream. Like, 
We just got no love, man. Look at that smile on his face. He's like, finally, someone just like me. He's like, I'm just stroking her hand and smiling, but then when he sees how she looks at him, he just cries, you know? us all to atoms. This all comes together really quick here at the end. Like, Elizabeth shows up, the creature's about ready to kill everybody. It all comes together very quickly. You live. Go. Once again, showing that he had more humanity than anybody else because he looks looks at Pretorius and is like, you stay, we belong, dead. Yeah. Another famous... Another great line, too. We belong dead. Uh, I think I was looking, too. That Last I looked, that was ranked number 63 of one of the 100 best movie quotes by Premier Magazine. Well, it should be. It's a great oh, yeah. line. Fabulous line. Once again, destroying that wonderful miniature that they put together. And it looks fairly damn good. He throws that lever and does blow everybody to atoms. And again, this is another one of those altered scenes. Henry was originally supposed to have died in that tower. Yes. And at the last minute, they thought it was too grim, so they changed it. So there's a quick cut of him in the tower, and the next scene, he's outside. Yep. And they just couldn't refilm it because it was too expensive to reset up that explosion again. And there we get sort of a happy ending for Henry and Elizabeth, but not such a happy ending for Pretorius, the monster, and the bride. We'd never see the bride again. One of the most iconic fucking characters. monster movie characters ever. And she was on screen for a total of about three and a half, four minutes. Well, that is the end of our movie. And as the title say, a good cast is worth repeating. And again, it would not say who the monster's mate was, but it was Elsa Lanchester. In the dual role as Mary Shelley and the monster's mate, the bride. Well... I know that you're a first-time guest on the show, but you've been a long-time listener, so I know you know how we do things around here. We usually do a final summary and uh, rating on a scale from 1 to 10, and guest goes first, so go ahead and take it away. I mean, it does have a couple of very major minor faults, so honestly, I give it a 9 out of 10. I would, I would probably... I would match your 9 out of 10. It's, you know, it's... it's product of the times you know there's a few things that are just a little wonky you know but it's damn near perfect I, I dare say i like it more than the original frankenstein although i would probably give them both probably a nine out of ten. Oh yeah absolutely they're they're great companion pieces to each other because after this it there the rest of the Frankenstein series was entertaining, but it never matched up to the quality of these first two. No, no, it never did. And and not and not to you know say that the other movies weren't good, but they were chucking them out at a much more of a rapid pace. You know, Son of Frankenstein, you know, Ghost of Frankenstein. Although I really like Ghost of Frankenstein and Frankenstein versus the Mummy and all the, the you know, not the Mummy versus uh, the Wolfman and whatnot. You know, 
all really, really good, but I think what Force would only play the creature one more time. Yeah, he would play it one more time for Son of Frankenstein, and then he was done. Which is sad. I mean, they had some, you know, Lon Chaney played him a couple of times. Uh, Bella Lugosi yeah, paid Bella. him once. And there's some, uh, there was another one, uh, I can't remember who played it, but uh, Glenn, oh gosh, can't remember his last name. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> no, I'm drawing the blank. I, I can see him, but I, I can't. I just can't think of the name right now. Uh, I want to say Glenn Ford, but I know that's not right. No, no. <laughs> that's not right. He did good, too, for the short time that he had. Yeah, even, you know, Umbella did good. I mean, everybody did good, but to me, when I think of traditional Frankenstein's monster, I think of Boris Karloff, and this is the look that would always go, you know, kind of walk hand-in-hand hand synonymous with Frankenstein. The flat top, the bolts in the neck, the gaunt face, the green skin. The well, clamps on the head. Yeah, the clamps. But yeah, the monster demands a mate. Of Frankenstein. Well, folks, I think we'll stick a pin in this one for the for the evening. We have been reviewing and dissecting in a feature-length commentary on The Bride of Frankenstein here on Sequel to Deja Vu. I have been your host, Cameron Scott. This has been my host, Matt Hagman. I want to thank you for making a track all the way out here to, yeah. you know, for, what, across three states just to come out here three and hang states, out with us for a weekend four and a half hours it was a great trip and i'm glad i got to do this it was a lot of fun yeah yeah it was well thank you I hope we can get you to come out here and do it again sometime soon absolutely all right folks as always thanks for listening and tune back in soon but i can't leave them i can't yes go you live go you stay We belong, Gabe.